Chapter thirty one of Henry Dunbar. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nick Whitley. Henry Dunbar by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter thirty one. Clement Austin makes a sacrifice. Margaret Wilmot had promised to become the wife of the man she loved, but she had given that promise very reluctantly, and only upon one condition. The condition was that before her marriage with Clement Austin took place, the mystery of her father's death should be cleared up for ever. I cannot be your wife so long as the secret of that cruel deed remains unknown, she said to Clement. It seems to me as if I have already been wickedly neglectful of a solemn duty. Who had my father to love him and remember him in all the world but me? And who should avenge his death if I do not? He was an outcast from society, and people think it a very small thing, that after having led a reckless life he should die a cruel death. If Henry Dunbar, the rich banker, had been murdered, the police would never have rested until the assassin had been discovered. But who cares what became of Joseph Wilmot, except his daughter? His death makes no blank in the world except to me. Except to me. Clement Austin did not forget his promise to do his uttermost towards the discovery of the banker's guilt. He believed that Henry Dunbar was the murderer of his old servant, and he had believed it ever since that day upon which the banker stole like a detective thief out of the house in St. Gundolph Lane. It was just possible that Henry Dunbar might avoid Joseph Wilmot's daughter from a natural horror of the events connected with his return to England, but that the banker should resort to a cowardly stratagem to escape from an interview with the girl could scarcely be accounted for except by the fact of his guilt. He had an insurmountable terror of seeing this girl because he was the murderer of her father. The longer Clement Austin deliberated upon this business, the more certainly he came to that one terrible conclusion. Henry Dunbar was guilty. He would gladly have thought otherwise, and he would have been very happy had he been able to tell Margaret Wilmot that the mystery of her father's death was a mystery that would never be solved upon this earth. But he could not do so. He could only bow his head before the awful necessity that urged him on to take his part in this drama of crime, the part of an avenger. But a cashier in a London bank has very little time to play any part in life's history except that quiet role which seems chiefly to consist in locking and unlocking iron safes, peering furtively into mysterious ledgers, and shovelling about new sovereigns as coolly as if they were Wall's End or Claycross Coals. Clement Austin's life was not an easy one, and he had no time to turn amateur detective, even in the service of the woman he loved. He had no time to turn amateur detective so long as he remained at the banking-house in St. Gundolph Lane. But could he remain there? That question arose in his mind and took a very serious form. Was it possible to remain in that house when he believed the principal member of it to be one of the most infamous of men? No, 
it was quite impossible for him to remain in his present situation so long as he took a salary from dunbar dunbar and balderby he was in a manner under obligation to henry dunbar he could not remain in this man's service and yet at the same time play the spy upon his actions and work heart and soul to drag the dreadful secret of his life into the light of day thus it was that towards the close of the week in which henry dunbar for the first time after his return from india visited the banking offices clement austin handed a formal notice of resignation to mr balderby the cashier could not immediately resign his situation but was compelled to give his employers a month's notice of the withdrawal of his services a thunderbolt falling upon the morocco-covered writing-table in mr balderby's private parlour could scarcely have been more astonishing to the junior partner than this letter which clement austin handed him very quietly and very respectfully there were many reasons why clement austin should remain in the banking-house his father had lived for thirty years and had eventually died in the employment of dunbar and dunbar he had been a great favourite with the brothers and clement had been admitted into the house as a boy and had received much notice from percival more than this he had every chance of being admitted ere long to a junior partnership upon very easy terms which junior partnership would of course be the high road to a great fortune mr balderby sat with the letter open in his hands staring at the lines before him as if he was scarcely able to comprehend their purport do you mean this austin he said at last yes sir circumstances over which i have no control compel me to offer you my resignation have you quarrelled with anybody in the office has anything occurred in the house that has made you uncomfortable no indeed mr balderby i am very comfortable in my position the junior partner leant back in his chair and stared at the cashier as if he had been trying to detect the traces of incipient insanity in the young man's countenance you are comfortable in your position and yet you-oh i suppose the real truth of the matter is that you have heard of something better and you are ready to give us the go-by in order to improve your own circumstances said mr balderby with a tone of pique though i really don't see how you can very well be better off anywhere than you are here he added thoughtfully you do me wrong sir when you think that i could willingly leave you for my own advantage clement answered quietly i have no better engagement nor have i even a prospect of any engagement you haven't exclaimed the junior partner and yet you throw away such a chance as only falls to the lot of one man in a thousand i don't particularly care about guessing riddles mr austin perhaps you'll be kind enough to tell me frankly why you want to leave us i regret to say that it is impossible for me to do so sir replied the cashier my motive for leaving this house which is a kind of second home to me is no frivolous one believe me i have weighed well the step i am about to take and i am quite aware that i sacrifice very excellent prospects in throwing up my present situation but the reason of my resignation must remain a secret for the present at least if ever the day comes when i am able to explain my conduct i believe that you will give me your hand and say to me clement austin you only did your duty clement said mr balderby you are an excellent fellow 
but you certainly must have got some romantic crotchet in your head or you could never have thought of writing such a letter as this are you going to be married is that your reason for leaving us have you fascinated some wealthy heiress and are you going to retire into splendid slavery no sir i am engaged to be married but the lady whom i hope to call my wife is poor and i have every necessity to be a working man for the rest of my life well then my dear fellow it's a riddle and as i said before i'm not good at guessing enigmas there my boy go home and sleep upon this and come back to me to-morrow morning and tell me to throw this stupid letter in the fire that's the wisest thing you can do good-night but in spite of all that mr balderby could say clement austin steadily adhered to his resolution he worked early and late during the months in which he remained at his post preparing the ledgers balancing accounts and making things straight and easy for the new cashier he told margaret wilmot of what he had done but he did not tell her the extent of the sacrifice which he had made for her sake she was the only person who knew the real motive of his conduct for to his mother he said very little more than he had said to mr balderby i shall be able to tell you my motives for leaving the banking-house at some future time dear mother he said until that time i can only entreat you to trust me and to believe that i have acted for the best i do believe it my dear answered the widow cheerfully when did you ever do anything that wasn't wise and good her only son clement was the god of this simple woman's idolatry and if he had seen fit to turn her out of doors and ask her to beg by his side in the streets of the city i doubt if she would not have imagined some hidden wisdom lurking at the bottom of his apparently irrational proceedings so she made no objection to his abandoning his desk in the house of dunbar dunbar and balderby we shall be poorer i suppose clem mrs austin said but that's very little consequence for your dear father left me so comfortably off that i can very well afford to keep house for my only son and i shall have you more at home dear and that will indeed be happiness but clement told his mother that he had some very important business on hand just then which would occupy him a good deal and indeed the first step necessary would be a journey to shorncliffe in warwickshire why that's where you went to school clem yes mother and it's near mr percival dunbar or at least mr dunbar's country house yes mother answered clement now the business in which i am engaged is is rather of a difficult nature and i want legal help my old schoolfellow arthur lovell who is as good a fellow as ever breathed has been educated for the law and is now a solicitor he lives at shorncliffe with his father john lovell who is also a solicitor and a man of some standing in the county i shall run down to shorncliffe see my old friend and get his advice and if you'll bring margaret down for a few days change of air we'll stop at the dear old reindeer where you used to come mother when i was at school and where you used to give me such jolly dinners in the days when a good dinner was a treat to a hungry schoolboy mrs austin smiled at her son she smiled tenderly as she remembered his bright boyhood mothers with only sons are not very strong-minded had clement proposed a trip to the moon she would scarcely have known how to refuse him her company on the expedition she shivered a little 
and looked rather doubtfully from the blazing fire which lit up the cosy drawing-room to the cold grey sky outside the window the beginning of january isn't the pleasantest time in the year for a trip into the country clem dear she said but i should certainly be very lonely at home without you and as to poor madge of course it would be a great treat to her to get away from her pupils and have a peep at the genuine country even though there isn't a single leaf upon the trees so i suppose i must say yes but do tell me all about this business there's a dear good boy unfortunately the dear good boy was obliged to tell his mother that the business in question was like his motive for resigning his situation a profound secret and that it must remain so for some time to come wait dear mother he said you shall know all about it by and by believe me when i tell you that it's not a very pleasant business he added with a sigh it's not unpleasant for you i hope clement it isn't pleasant for any one who is concerned in it mother answered the young man thoughtfully it's altogether a miserable business but i'm not concerned in it as a principle you know dear mother and when it's all over we shall only look back upon it as the passing of a black cloud over our lives and you will say that i have done my duty dearest mother don't look so puzzled added clement this matter must remain a secret for the present only wait and trust me i will my dear boy mrs austin said presently i will trust you with all my heart for i know how good you are but i don't like secrets clem secrets always make me uncomfortable no more was said upon this subject and it was arranged by and by that mrs austin and margaret should prepare to start for warwickshire at the beginning of the following week when clement would be freed from all engagements to messrs dunbar dunbar and balderby margaret had waited very patiently for this time in which clement would be free to give her all his help in that awful task which lay before her the discovery of henry dunbar's guilt you will go to shorncliffe with my mother clement austin said upon the evening after his conversation with the widow you will go with her madge ostensibly upon a little pleasure trip once there we shall be able to contrive an interview with mr dunbar he is a prisoner at maudsley abbey laid up by the effect of his accident the other day but not too ill to see people balderby says therefore i should think we may be able to plan an interview between you and him you still hold to your original purpose you wish to see henry dunbar yes answered margaret thoughtfully i want to see him i want to look straight into the face of the man whom i believe to be my father's murderer i don't know why it is but this purpose has been uppermost in my mind ever since i heard of that dreadful journey to winchester ever since i first knew that my father had been murdered while travelling with henry dunbar it might as you have said be wiser to watch and wait and to avoid all chance of alarming this man but i can't be wise i want to see him i want to look in his face and see if his eyes can meet mine you shall see him then dear girl a woman's instinct is sometimes worth more than a man's wisdom you shall see henry dunbar i know that my old schoolfellow arthur lovell will help me with all his heart and soul i have called again upon the scotland yard people and i gave them a minute description of the scene in st gundolph lane 
but they only shrugged their shoulders and said the circumstances looked queer but were not strong enough to act upon if anybody can help us arthur lovell can for he was present at the inquest and all further examination of the witnesses at winchester if margaret wilmot and clement austin had been going upon any other errand than that which took them to warwickshire the journey to shorncliffe might have been very pleasant to them to margaret this comfortable journey in the cushioned corner of a first-class carriage respectfully waited upon by the man she loved possessed at least the charm of novelty her journeys hitherto had been long wearisome pilgrimages in draughty third-class carriages with noisy company and in an atmosphere pervaded by a powerful effluvium of various kinds of alcohol her life had been a very hard one darkened by the ever-brooding shadow of disgrace it was new to her to sit quietly looking out at the low meadows and glimmering white-walled villas the patches of sparse woodland the distant villages the glimpses of rippling water shining in the wintry sun it was new to her to be loved by people whose minds were unembittered by the baneful memories of wrong and crime it was new to her to hear gentle voices sweet christian-like words it was new to her to breathe the bright atmosphere that surrounds those who lead a virtuous god-fearing life but there is little sunshine without its attendant shadow the shadow upon margaret's life now was the shadow of that coming task that horrible work which must be done before she could be free to thank god for his mercies and to be happy the london train reached shorncliffe early in the afternoon clement austin hired a roomy old fly and carried off his companions to the reindeer the reindeer was a comfortable old-fashioned hotel it had been a very grand place in the coaching days and you entered the hostelry by a broad and ponderous archway under which high flyers and electrics had driven triumphantly in the days that were forever gone the house was a roomy old place with long corridors and wide staircases noble staircases with broad slippery oaken banisters and shallow steps the rooms were grand and big with bow windows so spotless in their cleanness that they had rather a cold effect on a january day and were apt to inspire in the vulgar mind the fancy that a little dirt or smoke would look warmer and more comfortable certainly if the reindeer had a fault it was that it was too clean everything was actually slippery with cleanness from the newly calendared chintz that covered the sofa and the chair cushions to the copper coal-scuttle that glittered by the side of the dazzling brass fender there were faint odours of soft soap in the bedchambers which no amount of dried lavender could overcome there was an effluvium of vitriol about all the brasswork and there was a good deal of brasswork in the reindeer and if one species of decoration is more conducive to shivering than another it certainly is brasswork in a state of high polish there was no dish ever devised by mortal cook which the sojourner at the reindeer could not have according to the preliminary statement of the landlord but with whatever ambitious design the sojourner began to talk about dinner it always ended somehow or other by his ordering a chicken a little bit of boiled bacon a dish of cutlets and a tart 
there were days upon which divers species of fish were to be had in shorncliffe but the sojourner at the reindeer rarely happened to hit upon one of those days clement austin installed margaret and the widow in a sitting-room which would have comfortably accommodated about forty people there was a bow-window quite large enough for the requirements of a small family and mrs austin settled herself there while the landlord was struggling with a refractory fire and pretending not to know that the grate was damp clement went through the usual fiction of deliberation as to what he should have for dinner and of course ended with the perennial chicken and cutlets i haven't the fine appetite i had fifteen years ago mr gilwood he said to the landlord when my mother yonder who hasn't grown fifteen days older in all those fifteen years bless her dear motherly heart used to come down to see me at the academy in the lisford road and give me a dinner in this dear old room i thought your cutlets the most ethereal morsels ever dished by mortal cook mr gilwood and this room the best place in all the world you know mr lovell mr arthur lovell yes sir and a very nice young gentleman he is he's settled in shorncliffe i suppose well i believe he is sir there was some talk of his going out to india in a government appointment sir or something of that sort but i'm given to understand that it's all off now and that mr arthur is to go into partnership with his father and a very clever young lawyer he is i've been told so much the better answered clement for i want to consult him upon a little matter of business good-bye mother take care of madge and make yourselves as comfortable as you can i think the fire will burn now mr gilwood i shan't be away above an hour i dare say and then i'll come and take you for a walk before dinner god bless you my poor madge clement whispered as margaret followed him to the door of the room and looked wistfully after him as he went down the staircase mrs austin had once cherished ambitious views with regard to her son's matrimonial prospects but she had freely given them up when she found that he had set his heart upon winning margaret wilmot for his wife the good mother had made this sacrifice willingly and without complaint as she would have made any other sacrifice for her dearly beloved only son and she found the reward of her devotion for margaret this penniless friendless girl had become very dear to her a real daughter not in law but bound by the sweet ties of gratitude and affection and i was such a silly old creature my dear the widow said to margaret as they sat in the bow window looking out into the quiet street i was so worldly-minded that i wanted clement to marry a rich woman so that i might have some stuck-up daughter-in-law who would despise her husband's mother and estrange my boy from me and make my old age miserable that's what i wanted much and what i might have had perhaps if clem hadn't been wiser than his silly old mother and thanks to him i've got the sweetest truest brightest girl that ever lived though you are not as bright as usual to-day madge mrs Austin added thoughtfully you haven't smiled once this morning my dear and you seem as if you'd something on your mind i've been thinking of my poor father margaret answered quietly to be sure my dear and i might have known as much my poor tender-hearted lamb 
I know how unhappy those thoughts always make you. Clement Austin had not been at Shorncliffe for three years. He had visited Maudsley Abbey several times during the lifetime of Percival Dunbar, for he had been a favourite with the old man, and he had been four years at a boarding-school kept by a clergyman of the Church of England in a fine old brick mansion on the Lisford Road. The town of Shorncliffe was therefore familiar to Mr. Austin, and he looked neither to the right nor to the left as he walked towards the archway of St. Gwendolen's Church, near which Mr. Lovell's house was situated. He found Arthur at home, and very delighted to see his old schoolfellow. The two young men went into a little panelled room, looking into the garden, a cosy little room which Arthur Lovell called his study, and here they sat together for upwards of an hour, discussing the circumstances of the murder at Winchester, and the conduct of Mr. Dunbar since that event. In the course of that interview Clement Austin plainly perceived that Arthur Lovell had come to the same conclusion as himself, though the young lawyer was slow to express his opinion. "'I cannot bear to think it,' he said. "'I know Laura Dunbar—that uh, is to say, Lady Jocelyn—and it is too horrible to me to imagine that her father is guilty of this crime. What would be that innocent girl's feelings if it should be so, and if her father's guilt should be brought home to him?' "'Yes, it would be very terrible for Lady Jocelyn, no doubt,' Clement answered. "'But that consideration must not hinder the course of justice. "'I think this man's position has served him as a shield from the very first. "'People have thought it next to impossible that Henry Dunbar could be guilty of a crime, "'while they would have been ready enough to suspect some penniless vagabond of any iniquity.' "'Arthur Lovell told Clement that the banker was still at Maudsley.' bound a prisoner by his broken leg, which was going on favourably enough, but very slowly. Mr. Dunbar had expressed a wish to go abroad in spite of his broken leg, and had only desisted from his design of being conveyed somehow or other from place to place when he was told that any such imprudence might result in permanent lameness. "'Keep yourself quiet, and submit to the necessities of your accident, and you'll recover quickly.' the surgeon told his patient. Try to hurry the work of nature, and you'll have cause to repent your impatience for the remainder of your life. So Henry Dunbar had been obliged to submit himself to the decrees of fate, and to lie day after day, and night after night, upon his bed in the tapestried chamber, staring at the fire, or the figure of his valet and attendant, nodding in the easy chair by the hearth, or listening to the cinders falling from the grate, and the moaning of the winter wind amongst the bare branches of the elms. The banker was getting better and stronger every day, Arthur Lovell said. His attendants were able to remove him from one chamber to another. A pair of crutches had been made for him, but he had not yet been able to make his first feeble trial of them. He was fain to content himself with being carried to an easy-chair to sit for a few hours wrapped in blankets with the leopard-skin rug about his legs. No man could have been more completely a prisoner than this man had become by the result of the fatal accident near Rugby. "'Providence has thrown him into my power,' Margaret said, when Clement repeated to her the information which he had received from Arthur Lovell. "'Providence has thrown this man into my power.' 
for he can no longer escape, and surrounded by his own servants he will scarcely dare to refuse to see me. He will surely never be so unwise as to betray his terror of me. And if he does refuse, if he does, I'll invent some stratagem by which I may see him. But he will not refuse. When he finds that I am so resolute as to follow him here, he will not refuse to see me. This conversation took place during a brief walk, which the lovers took in the wintry dusk, while Mrs. Austin nodded by the fire in that comfortable half-hour which precedes dinner. End of chapter 31 Recording by Nick Whitley, Purley, Greater London, England